Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is kindly sponsored by The Body Shop. The Body Shop are proudly a B Corp, making them one of 3,000 businesses worldwide to have the highest social and environmental standards for people and the planet. They're on a mission to reduce their impact, and one of the ways they do this is ensuring they use less plastic, and they do this via their refill stations, which I absolutely adore. First developed 45 years ago, the refills are now back in action. You can join their refill revolution and replenish some of your favourite shower gels and shampoos in your local store. They come in super cute aluminium bottles, and I just love this process. I'm a big fan. What's more, they've just relaunched their return, recycle, repeat scheme in store and they're partnering with Scan to Recycle and My Group to help us properly recycle or repurpose our old beauty packaging. The Body Shop even accept packaging from other brands, so there's no excuse not to get involved. The Body Shop is a brand I've worked with for a long time and recently they partnered with this week's podcast guest, Gina Martin, on their awesome self-love campaign. This aims to inspire people to start their self-love journey. If we want to make any positive impact in the world, we need to start with nourishing our own mental and physical needs. And this is a statement I wholly support. Check out their website, thebodyshop.com, for more info. Hello, welcome back to All the Small Things with me, Venetia Lamana. If you're new here, you are so welcome. And if you're old here, thanks so much for coming back. It's wonderful to be back inside your ears and I am really, really excited about today's episode. My guest today is someone I have been chatting to on and off for quite a while and I've actually been trying to get her on the podcast for probably about six months and she did not disappoint. Honestly, I find her super inspiring. She is, of course, as you've seen in the title of the episode, Gina Martin. Gina is a Liverpool-born, London-based campaigner, speaker and writer, perhaps best known for founding and running the national campaign to make upskirting illegal and changing English and Welsh law by creating the Voyeurism Act. This campaign has made life so much safer for women and marginalised genders and three other countries have since followed suit. She didn't stop there. In 2020, alongside black plus-size model Naomi Nicholas-Williams and photographer Alex Cameron, Gina helped change Instagram's nudity policy, which previously censored larger black women's bodies. Last year, Gina rejected an OBE. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, OBE stands for Order of the British Empire. And this is something that's awarded to people for their contributions to society. Now, due to the enduring violence and oppression of the British Empire, Gina rejected this award, writing on Twitter, It would be deeply hypocritical of me to accept this honour while continuing to be vocal in my commitment to anti-racism and understanding the deep and unsettling race issues the British Empire has built into the foundation of our country and many others. 
Gina's first book, Be the Change, is a practical guide for activists starting out. If you're someone who wants to make a difference and really cares a lot about a specific issue that you don't think is being handled by the government or by the system well, this is a book for you. It can really, really help you figure out just how to get started. And I really, really enjoyed reading it. It is, of course, linked in the episode notes. Gina is also an ambassador for UN Women UK and advocates for regular people creating change in their communities with a specific focus on young people, as you'll hear more about in this episode. We also talk about Gina's campaigning, touching on the less glamorous side that doesn't make it into mainstream media, the lessons she's learned and the depths of what she's been through. I absolutely loved this conversation so, so much. I genuinely could have talked to Gina for another three hours. She is so interesting and so intelligent. And I really hope you love it. So here is Gina Martin on All the Small Things. Let us start the podcast as we always do. I'd love to hear a little bit about whether or not you have any kind of semblance of a morning routine or if you have any rituals or habits you like to practice to kind of set yourself up for the day or perhaps if things are fairly chaotic and change every day. They've always been chaotic and changed every day for me. Even when I had an office, when I was working in advertising before I started campaigning and even when I was doing that, I didn't have a routine and I had to go and leave the house and get to work at the same time every morning. I know a lot of people who find comfort in the kind of routine of their day and it gives them a sense of control over their day and of themselves. I think that would be really good for me, but I've never been able to get that down. But about four months ago, we got a puppy called P and it's like someone just dropped a firework into our lives. Like she just changed everything and she was so difficult to raise and she is such a drivey headstrong stubborn little gorgeous asshole she's really forced me to have a bit of a routine so now I've been getting up at 7 30 ever since I had her because she won't sleep in and taking her for a walk and that's been probably really good for my head so that's kind of where I'm at now I despise it I'll be honest I can't stand getting up early but I think it's good for me that I've got a bit more of a routine now with her Little P is so cute. She's so cute. And what about, are you a caffeine person? Are you like, yes, you're a caffeine person. That's the one thing every morning that I do. We have a Smeg coffee machine, which when I bought it was like, oh, I've literally made it. Jordi was like, you changed the law last year. And I was like, yes, but it wasn't until this moment where I had a Smeg coffee machine where I felt like <laughs> I'm the woman, you know, like I used to watch One Tree Hill and be like, I'll be like that. I'll wake up every morning and make myself a coffee at the breakfast island. Don't have an island. <laughs> Um, but I have a coffee machine and every morning I make myself a coffee and I'm like, I'm just the woman I'm meant to be. And then it all goes to shit about 20 minutes later. But during that moment, it's really ritualistic and nice to make it for myself and just stand there with the dog and have a coffee. I love to give my listeners a really good grounding of my guests. And I was wondering if we could wind back the clocks and hear a little bit about your life growing up in Liverpool, a bit about your family and kind of some of your childhood memories. Yeah. So interesting fact. I didn't actually grow up in Liverpool, but everyone's a scouser in my family. And I was born in Liverpool. And then we moved outside of Liverpool. The reason I always reference Liverpool as my childhood and and my home, I guess, is partly because the affinity I have with it, because we were always there for my family and stuff. And where I actually grew up was this tiny village where I didn't really know anyone. I just basically went to school in this village and we spent a lot of our time in Liverpool. It's also a safety thing because I've had a lot of issues with my work and safety and I had like a stalking case for two years against a guy from my school so because I'm on so many platforms I never really want to say the town in which I grew up 
my mum and dad, they've been together since they were teenagers, young teenagers, and they're just really cool people and they love each other so much still. They're like really good friends and they just have a lot of fun together. And so I grew up in a family where I felt very loved and very supported. Dad's not really a he doesn't have a lot of the typical masculine traits about him. He's a very sensitive, you know, excellent writer, brilliant with words, wonderful man. And my mum's super, super creative, has had so many lifetimes and so many different jobs. And her brain is just like mine. So I grew up in this family that was very like, talk about your feelings all the time. Do anything you want. You want to audition for the Harry Potter films? I'll drive down to London. I could talk to my dad about like, being on my period and like buying tampons and like when I bought my first bra I was like look at my first bra and dad was like sure that's great but close the curtains like you know there wasn't really it wasn't super gendered either and I wasn't very academic in school my sister was brilliant brilliantly academic I wasn't I was kind of average in school academically but I was very creative and I was kind of happy to be average because I loved the creative stuff and I just remember growing up and feeling like just wanting to spend time with my family a lot more than wanting to spend time with friends and just just had a very happy childhood and I think that defined a lot of the way I am now you know like I'm I'm good at excavating my feelings and like I just am very open and I'm good at fighting for things and I care about people and I think a lot of that came from my parents and our very northern cuddly upbringing. It's really refreshing to hear someone talk in such a loving way about their family and They just sound awesome, your family. So yeah, thanks for sharing that with me. You actually started your career in advertising, right? Tell me about those kind of first early years and the kind of skills that you learned and whether or not you actually enjoyed that industry. I'm really, I'm really interested to learn more. I did start it in advertising and I, I studied fine art through school. Like I was always a painter and a drawer and I spent most of my time in college in the art department, even though I was doing other courses. And then I went to an art school for a year and did like glass blowing and textiles and I just wanted to be an artist but I didn't think that I'd be able to do it and make money which is weird considering that dad's a drummer and he was like do it and I was like no Roy you don't understand you can't make a living that way he's like I'm literally a musician but I didn't think it was possible so I I used to be really interested in tv ads and I used to watch tv ads and be like oh it would have been better if they'd left that last line out or I don't think that script was good and I always used to just comment on them when I was really young and I remember doing it with dad and dad being like you should go into it because you clearly enjoy it and pulling apart why something works and doesn't so then I went to uni and did creative advertising and I studied that and that was in Leeds which is amazing and then when I left uni I kind of had to move to London because that was where all the jobs were but I just didn't have the money for me to live in London which is impossible so I sofa surfed for the first like six months and then me and my creative partner because in advertising as a creative you're a copywriter and there's an art director and you're like a team there's two of you traditionally not anymore but that when I was doing advertising that's what it was like so you would get hired as a couple and fired as a couple wow no pressure yeah I know and you have to really love each other because you live together and or we did and work together and wow it's intense my creative partner was Jen and she was the words and I was the pictures. So I was the art director and she was a copywriter. And we just had this real idealistic, like we're going to make it, get a job in advertising and we've got great ideas and we're just going to go for it. When I look back, I'm like, wow, because we lived in, we sofa surfed. And then this old man we didn't know was like, do you want to come and live in our pub, my pub in the storeroom? Right? Yes. So if you, you can't see Vanisha's face, but she's being like, are you going to be killed? That's the face she's using. <laughs> Sounds so good. But he like seemed really nice and he basically gave us the storeroom of his pub for free and we slept on a single camp bed in this like wooden room with all these like 
promotional like there was like a massive red bull can and all these like glasses for the bar like we were just in a storeroom and we lived there for six months and we interned at ad agencies for no money and like genuinely we were just eating rice every night and like he didn't have a bathroom so we had to get like an easy gym membership for like 20 pound a month just to use their showers we became really close to jerry who took us in and we found out that jerry's been doing that for 15 years with people who need a space he's just been giving that room to people forever and there's all these people who would come into the pub who'd be like oh because of jerry like i now have a life in london like he was the only one who allowed me to stay here and i couldn't afford to be here i ended up living there for two years with him and he decorated the room for us as a surprise and got us separate beds and and i worked in advertising and i worked as an art director and then I went away for a year, took a year out with Geordie and lived in Greece with Geordie because Geordie was working on boats in Greece. So I went to live with him for a year and then I came back and that's when the campaign started. And I did enjoy advertising, but there was definitely always a part of me that was like, I'm not doing something that like speaks to my morals or my like soul. Like I don't want to sell people cars. I don't want to sell people whiskey. But like the skills I've learned in how to make people care about a product, like semantics, color theory, language, copywriting, how you can grab attention, how do you cut through, like all those things I learned, I just took all of those and did it with a cause. And so I became really good at getting people to care about things because I could get them to care about whiskey and who cares about (laughs) whiskey, you know, like every brand, I'd be like, this is why this brand is going to change your life. So it did teach me to be a great campaigner and I'm so thankful for it, but I just morally, I just didn't love it. And so I just wanted to leave and I, I worked full time as a copywriter the whole time I did the campaign. And then when I had the opportunity to leave and write this book, it was like, okay, this is the time because this isn't my calling. Wow. So you were continuing to work full time during your upskirting campaign? Yeah. So I worked full time nine till six the whole time I was doing the campaign. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let's talk about this campaign. Can you tell us about the festival that you went to in 2017 with your sister Stevie when you watched The Killers and what happened during the festival? Of course. So that was British Summertime Festival, July 2017. And I was 25. And I'd just come back from Greece and I'd just got this new job working as a copywriter about two months before. And in Greece, where I worked, it was a very sexist environment because I was working on yachts. I used to like, you know, park a yacht and there'd be a group of men like clapping being like couldn't believe a woman could like park a yacht and I wasn't allowed to do the job I wanted to do in Greece because I was a woman I had to be a hostess I wasn't allowed to go and like learn to be a skipper and I guess I got frustrated over that year and I came back and I went to this festival and I hadn't seen Stevie in a year and I just really wanted to be with her because I missed her so much and these guys were hitting on me and Stevie while we were waiting for the killers to come on stage it was very obvious I wanted them to stop. I kind of said a few times, like, honestly, mate, like, can you just stop? I'm just trying to spend time with my sister. And it went on and on. And then this one guy started to get annoyed. He shouted something at me and I cut back at him. And a couple of minutes later, I felt someone brush up against me, but I didn't think anything of it because I was in a crowd of 60,000 people. They also saw laughing. And I could feel them laughing at me. And then I, there was one big blonde guy in front of me. And I looked around to see what he was doing. And he was on his phone and he'd been sent this picture on whatsapp which was like a really well taken photo of someone's crotch and I remember looking at it and being like oh that's me because I knew what I was wearing but I just remember the image like it's burnt into my mind it was such a stupid patriarchal pressuring things like I hadn't shaved and I was wearing a thong and my like underwear was slightly twisted and like all of these things I was like ashamed of that were in the photo even though they were just my body and I shouldn't be. And no one should have been able to see it anyway, right? And I, because I was so humiliated and ashamed by the photo, like I grabbed the phone, 
And then he turned around and we got into like a bit of a scuffle. Like I slapped him and he was like shaking my shoulder trying to get me to drop the phone. So I ran with the phone and he chased me. And then I got security guard and then the police came and they looked at the phone and they were like, we've looked at it. It's not a nice picture. It shows more than you'd want it to show. But it's not a graphic image. Like you won't hear much from us. I'm really sorry. Do you want to make a statement? And I said, because I was literally crying so hard, I couldn't articulate myself. So I said, not right now. And then they said, okay, well, we've made him delete the picture, which at the time I was like, okay, great. But obviously that was my evidence. And just to interject, we ask so much of women and marginalized genders or people who have been in situations where they've been violated or they've been assaulted or they've been harassed. Did you get evidence? Have you got witnesses? Did you report it immediately after? Did you alert everyone around you to what was happening? Did you get the phone? Like we're constantly asking so much of these people who are in a situation where they're freezing or they're flying because they're just so terrified. And I did everything you could possibly do. I literally had like 15 witnesses. I handed the guy in. I had the photo I went straight to the security. Then I went straight to the police and still it wasn't enough. And so when they said that, I just was like, okay, I guess, I guess you're right. Cause I'm so used to being let down. Like I, I mentioned before, I've had a stalking case for two years and that ended in nothing. And so there's this feeling of like, right, sure, obviously. And they just, they just said, go back into the festival. They didn't even kick the guys out. And then I spent the rest of the night at the festival performing. I'm fine. And then I went home and just had this moment of like, hang on, like, how how can that be right? I just got super angry and started researching it and found out it wasn't a sexual offence, but it had been in Scotland for 10 years. And then I just kicked off effectively a huge social media campaign because I was fueled by anger. To have gone through something like that and to have then had to tell the police about it adds like a whole other level of shame, fear, anxiety. And then to be told by them that there's nothing you could have done and you could do it absolutely breaks my heart. I guess I'm shocked, but never surprised. You started this campaign predominantly on social media, right? And I think if people are familiar with it, they will have seen you get incredible media coverage. You know, you were in all the newspapers on all the kind of big time day TV shows here in the UK. But I'm also really interested to hear kind of less about the glamorous side and more about what it was like working on it behind the scenes because you said you were also working on this alongside your full-time job so tell me about what the next steps were and what that was like for you. I yeah I started this social media campaign which is effectively me asking the question why is upscaling not a sexual offence? I no longer am in a space where I believe that criminalizing these things is what stops them. And my politics has gone to a place where I want to work in a space where I create discussions and community to stop it getting to the point where men do these things, right? But at this point, all I could see was I'm exhausted by these things happening one of the first stages was collecting stories from people, right? Seeing how much this is happening. And there was like 12 year old girls who were saying like, oh, I'm in, I'm in a school in South Croydon where the teacher was doing this for five years to the kids. And they found thousands of photos on a USB of the kids, but he didn't get prosecuted because the law wasn't fit for purpose to prosecute every instance of upskirting. The law included voyeurism which says that if you're in a place of reasonable expectation of privacy, like a changing room or your house, and someone operates equipment through your window or under a stall, that's voyeurism. But these kids were in a public place, in a school. And that was my problem, was that I was in a public field. And so the law was confused as to whether it could work, because it was like, 
where you've taken your body into a public space. So you, you, don't, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy there. So this guy didn't get prosecuted for doing this to children for years. He just got fired and went back to his half million pound home. And I had all these like young kids being like, and I could feel the pain in their emails and their messages because everyone had had to see these for all the teachers had had to look at them. And they were so humiliated and they didn't want to go to school. This one girl, I remember it sticks in my head, she said every morning before I go to school, I feel physically sick. Like I, I almost vomit every time because I'm so nervous about going to school because everyone's seen up my skirt. And so I had all these people tell me these stories and it was like, I have to do something with it. Just this like emotional, just raw feeling of like, I have to stop it. Like, I just have to stop it. And I don't even know what that means. But like, all I can imagine is like, the system is like this. And so and so I have to go to the system and tell the system it's wrong and create something in the system, which at least brings accountability to these perpetrators. And my thinking is a lot less simplistic now about justice. But at the time, it wasn't. I was 25. And so I... Started the social media campaign. I started a petition. I started doing paid Facebook ads. I worked with Eliza Hatch, who does Cheer Up Love, to photograph people who had been through upskirting and tell their stories in a way that allowed them to reown the space. We would go back to where it happened. We would photograph them and then we would write their stories up. And I did a lot of media work like that. But I think behind the scenes, there was just this real just sense of like anger and like I have to be in movement for the first time after something like this has happened because every other time I've brushed off and just stayed frozen I've just stayed quiet I've laid in bed and rehearsed what I wish I'd said to the guy who pulled my shirt off at a club and felt my boobs like what should I have said to him and I've never ever done the thing I wished I'd done and this was the first opportunity to do it in a big way that I could put all of the hurt into from all the other times and like make something good happen with it there was a lot of like motivation and a lot of anger and a lot of movement and a lot of it doesn't matter that I'm tired it doesn't matter that I'm getting up at 5 a.m it doesn't matter that my boss is definitely seeing me work on this in work because it's more important. And the social media campaign did really well. And because obviously analytics and numbers and data from social, you can see it up front. You can see that 20,000 people have engaged with this. I took all those numbers to media, big media, and said like, the audience is already there. You're going to want to talk about this. And that's how I got all the TV stuff. But that's when it started to become uncomfortable. That's when all the like online abuse started happening. And I started getting rape threats. And that's when I started to be like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And I paused for a while at that point, I think. Wow. So how long did you pause for? And also like, what was it that, I'm assuming the thing that brought you back to the campaign was like feeling like you had to, because you were hearing all these stories from all these survivors and victims and like you almost had to do it for them and do it for past you, right? I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, no, that's literally it. I think if it was about my case, I would have stopped about a month in. It became so much bigger than me. And I was talking to these girls who don't even have a democratic voice. Like They can't even vote. They have their social media accounts, which are private because they're young and they don't feel like they can talk about anything publicly. And then there was also this 65-year-old woman who was a teacher and like the male students had been working together to get upskirt photos of their teacher. She was like, I've lost all my ability to teach because I'm so nervous now and I've lost all my authority and I'm I'm terrified and I can't talk about it because I'm a teacher. So there's all these people who were in situations where they couldn't talk about it and then it became, yeah, okay, well, I think I paused for about two weeks. I did media and there was this weird dichotomy of people being like, oh, Gina's on the TV, that's really impressive. And then me feeling like I'm scared of going on the TV because all I'm getting is abuse from men. And so I, I, I paused for two weeks, partly because of the abuse, but also partly of, of like 
what do I do next here? Awareness is great, but how do I turn this into like actual concrete change on a system level? And that's when I actually was talking to a friend at work and he said, you need to get a kick-ass lawyer like who's just gonna fight this with you. And I remember being like, oh, okay. So I paused and I just sent loads of emails to law firms. I couldn't afford a lawyer. So I contacted all the law firms that did pro bono representation and I packaged up all the media because the way to sell it in, I thought, was like, you're going to want to be the law firm that solves or works on this issue because everyone knows about it. And I think we need to change the law. And saying that was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I talked to a friend who was a law student and she she basically wrote me out like the basics of the law currently and what the, the law in Scotland was and showed me in language I could understand, right? Because like, even now I, I do read bills now because I have more experience, but I have to really try and understand it because it's not accessible language. It's written by people in institutions that are highly academic and it's so hard to understand. And so she wrote me this one pager out and showed me that there was a gap in the law. And I kind of used that to go to law firms and say like, look, there is a gap in the law. Look at all this media coverage. People are angry about this. How can we solve it? And I eventually found Ryan Whelan who worked for Gibson Dunn and he basically took a huge risk and convinced Gibson Dunn to take me on. And then we started a a political and legal campaign that would take the new legislation to parliament and try and fight for 18 months to get MPs from every party to back it and eventually table a bill that would change the law. A couple of questions for you. Do you know why it was illegal in Scotland, but it wasn't illegal in England and Wales? Is there a reason for that? Did you ever find out why? There's a political trend in Scotland where Scotland tends to take on these more progressive welfare-based policies earlier. I'm not sure exactly why, but I also know that upskirting is a massive problem in Scotland with men and kilts. Right. Oh, wow. So there was a cultural conversation happening in Scotland about oh what's under your kilt and all this stuff and we know that cultural conversations lead to structural conversations which then can lead to change so I think that there was a bit of a faster timeline because of that in Scotland and and we also know that when men complain about something things change a lot faster than when women complain about it (laughs) I was gonna say Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Hearing you talk about successfully changing the law, and you know, that was a little while ago now. I'm interested to hear now, would you say you're someone who is more doing everything you can to change the world in the best way that you can under the system that we're in? 
or are you someone now who sees yourself as a bit more of a kind of abolitionist where are you at with like politics in general having had this experience of it now I'm consistently moving towards abolition politics it's very very hard for me to look back at that campaign and not in some way think it did a job some of the men that we first prosecuted with this law and I should specify it's actually not a new law we amended section 67 of the sexual offences act so within the sexual offences act that now includes upskirting as a specified piece of legislation so the first two men that we prosecuted I knew through all my research and through the two years of working on this problem that upskirting was a gateway behavior to more violent repetitive sexual violence I saw it in so many stories that people told me and those stories will die with me I will never talk about those stories or the specificity of those stories but we saw so much that men and it is majority men who perpetrate this offense they upskirt they're also doing all these other things and that was reflected in the first two men who were prosecuted with the law were convicted pedophiles the first man has been a repeat offender for decades and the second man was seen upskirting someone in the supermarket and they found 250,000 indecent images of children on his devices. So what the CPS has found is that this law is helping them catch violent offenders. So there's part of me that's like, I don't want there to be a prison system. I don't want the UK to have one of the most profitable prison systems in Europe. I don't think that criminalising people stops them doing it. We know that offenders repeat because there isn't a rehabilitation program that is changing offenders minds changing their belief system challenging them in a a way where they have the space to understand their behavior and figure out how to be a different person or change their behavior that doesn't exist so I now know after researching and reading a lot of work from Angela Davis and a lot of other people that that's not the best way to solve these problems which is why I want the future of my work and my politics to be in working with young people to unpick all these problems and where they come from before they get to the point of offending. When I was 25, I didn't know that. And there was a period of time where I really struggled. I was so worried that the work I've done has, and it has really buoyed up carceral feminism. And carceral feminism is the idea that incarceration is the answer to all of our problems with sexual assault and stuff, that that's where it ends. And I don't believe that. And I've been a great poster child for carceral feminism. And I really struggle with that fact because my politics has changed. But the reality is, is that I have another 40 years to do this work. And hopefully I can do 40 years of work that is going to help us prevent these things instead of just criminalize them. I am now moving towards a point where I don't believe in these systems anymore. And I don't believe that they're working. And my work going on will reflect that. I am so grateful that you shared that with us because I think this is something that on varying layers, so many listeners, myself included, can relate to. And actually one of the things that I think I appreciate the most about your work is how honest you are about making mistakes, taking accountability for them, because that is how we progress collectively. And I don't think I could sleep at night if I wasn't honest about that stuff. Like, I think that's what the work is. The work is about honesty and humanity. So if I don't have those two things, I don't really know what I'm doing. Like, I am really interested to talk a little bit more about social media, actually, and like how that comes into campaigning. Being so forward facing during the upskirting campaign led you to receive a lot of awful, like you've described, online abuse. 
yet you were kind of using the platforms that you've received that abuse from to get your campaign out. And then last year, you worked on Naomi Nicholas Williams campaign that changed Instagram's unfair nudity policy, which involved an algorithm that prejudiced against people with plus size bodies who have larger breasts and particularly black people. You changed that policy with Instagram. So you're also like working with those social media companies to make them better, basically. So let's talk a little bit about that campaign and your experience of social media and campaigning. I think at the beginning, I loved the social media aspect of the campaign with Upskirting because I felt like I could really control it. I could drive it. I could put things out there, make things happen and then see the result. I don't care what anyone says. I totally believe that social media democratizes activism in the same way that housewives in America in the 60s were calling across states to organize the Jewish meat boycott and they were able to talk to five people in an evening. We can now talk to 5,000 people in an evening. I really believe it's amazing. I do also believe in the difficulty in the conversation about performative activism, like I'm fully also behind that. But there's something really beautiful about using it correctly and responsibly and using it as a tool for work that is happening outside of it. So Naomi's campaign was a really good example of that because basically what happened is that we didn't know each other. And I saw this was happening to her and Alex Cameron, who took the photo, had just DM'd me saying, can you help with this? Because we don't know what to do. Like everything's being taken down and we can't get it kept up. So I contacted Naomi. I just introduced myself and said, I've worked in social media and I've worked in campaigning. And if you want to discuss like a strategy to try and change a, a uh, policy here like we could discuss that basically what I was doing was what Ryan did for me which was like going out on a limb and being like I can work for you and I'll do it for free and maybe I could help you out here because I have some access that maybe you don't because I had all these contacts and all these people I'd worked with so then she said yeah that'd be amazing so we started to work together and I was kind of campaign lead so I would kind of strategize okay we're going to do this and then we're going to do this open letter and I would kind of organize that and then we're going to put up pressure on this person and who do we need to get in the room to talk to about this and how are the policies written and all that. So that was a really wonderful thing to work on because it felt very full circle for me to be able to give my time and skills to someone else because that's what Ryan did for me and that's what people did for me during the campaign. So social media has played a really weird role. You know, at times it's been like the tool that helps me change the law. It's been the tool that connects me with people who understand what I've been through like people who've been upskirted it's been the tool that has brought more men into my life than I've ever wanted who make me scared to leave the house and it's also been the tool that has allowed me to work for other people to bring justice in their situations it's just unending impossibilities but I think to finish what we have to do with it is we have to use it as part of a larger strategy when we're trying to make change it is a tool like a petition is a tool a petition isn't a campaign social media isn't a campaign it's a communications tool you use in a campaign and I think if we use it more like that we'll be in a better place than seeing that you talk about it really really brilliantly in your fantastic TED talk which made me cry uh, such a brilliant TED talk it's had over half a million views it's really really exceptional I recommend everyone listening to this podcast to watch it and you also talk about it and write about it in your book be the change which is such a fab toolkit for anyone who is wanting to make a change you really do like make this work accessible in a way that I don't think is done enough frankly we touched very very briefly on performative activism and there are just 
a couple of things I would love to hear your thoughts on. It was recently announced that The Revolution is indeed going to be televised. Usher, Priyanka, Chopra Jonas and Julianne Hugh will host a competition series called The Activist. This is when activists will go head to head in challenges to promote their causes with their success measured via online engagement, social metrics and hosts input. As someone who is really deeply involved with organising and has a good understanding of the media, what are your thoughts, Gina? I could not hate it more. You look at TV entertainment formats and they are based around concepts that are light touch lifestyle content. So like MasterChef, it's about cooking, you know, singing competitions, they're about singing. Activism, for many activists globally, activism is one of the most dangerous jobs you can do. There are people globally right now in Afghanistan, there are women who can't call themselves an activist because they will lose their lives for being one. And the communities that we work in as activists are dealing with real life, terrifying situations, whether that's they don't have enough food to eat or they're caught in a war zone or they're dealing with sexual assault or they're exploited in their industry like garment workers are. These issues are some of the most serious and important issues we have in our society. And to create a a show that pits people off against each other to raise money for people. Firstly, completely takes away the collective element because it's like, you're the activist and that's the community over there. Go and help them. It's very saviour complex. But secondly, the entire essence of activism is against the status quo, is community, is not for profit. It's about people working together to create change in their communities. And so all this does is it glamorises activism to a point where it takes all of the human aspect out of it and makes it about people winning at activism. And the whole point of being an activist is not to win, it's to help people. And the reason I believe that they have those three talent as their hosts is because they couldn't get activists because there was not one self-respecting, hardworking activist or campaigner or organiser that would agree to go on a show like this. It's also going to really damage the perception of what activism is because we have so little visibility for the people who are doing real activism and changing people's lives and communities already. Activism is so whitewashed already, which is another part of it I've been. Activism is turning into this sort of aspirational quote unquote job of which it isn't. And this TV show is going to go a really far away in, in, you know, cementing that concept. There's one little thing. Thank you also for sharing that insight. That's really, really interesting. Um, I also just wanted to hear if you if you had any thoughts about um, AOCs, who's someone I know you really respect and admire and look up to. If you had any thoughts on her, the dress that she wore to the Met Gala in New York. Yes, I think that's a pretty interesting one, isn't it? I, I genuinely believe AOC is someone who is trying to make a difference in the confines of very hostile political territory in American politics. Look, I would love that capitalism didn't exist and we could all just be like, I don't go to nice things and I don't engage in lovely things. But the reality is, is we live under the system we're living in. The Met Gala was in New York and she got invited. She didn't pay for a ticket. She loaned a dress from a a black designer who is sustainable, is ethical and platform that designer, and she used it to to give a, a bit of a political slogan. Do we think that her dress is going to change everything? Obviously not, but it's just a bit of support for a bill that she is actively pushing through. I just think the woman's doing probably working incredibly hard and wanted a night out and thought she'd 
go to rich people's place, eat their food and tell them to be taxed. And I thought, well, good on you. I knew you'd have some fantastic thoughts. Gina, I feel like you're going to be up for a quick fire. I love a quick fire. I knew it. Okay, quick fire with Gina. Wake up early or have a lion? Have a lion. Lattes or flat whites? Flat whites. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Jam or marmite? Jam. Acrylics or oil paints? Acrylics, I don't know how to use oils. Walks or snuggles with pee? Walks, because I can't snuggle it because all she does is bite still. Twitter or Instagram? Uh, just Instagram because I get less hate. Writing or speaking? Writing. Fiction or non-fiction? Non-fiction. Podcasts or Netflix? Podcasts. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset I'm in bed. And finally, routine or spontaneity? Spontaneity. Final questions. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit? Cuddling, Geordie. Oh, very cute. What have you read, listened to, or watched recently that you'd love to recommend? Watched All In For Democracy with Stacey Abrams. Read Emma DeBeery, What White People Should Do Next. And finally, what is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved? Able to make enough money to have you know, a life that is like a nice little flat and go out for dinner a couple of weeks because my family have always been, you know, working class and struggling. So like have enough money to have a a small, modest, but comfortable life and have done that by sticking to my morals. I love that. Gina, I feel like I could have honestly talked to you for another two hours. Thank you so much for being so generous with your thoughts. I'm really, really grateful for you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for giving me the space to speak honestly on it. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can always share it on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venetia Lamana and tagging the show at ATST Podcast. Alternatively, you can just share the link directly with a friend, either on WhatsApp or on a text, or you can tell them about it over FaceTime or in person. If you just want to chat about it, that would be amazing. It really helps me get the word of the podcast out there. And if you have a spare few seconds, please do leave it a five-star review on iTunes. That honestly makes the biggest difference. I will see you back here next week where I'm going to be interviewing the super inspiring Tessa Khan, who is an environmental lawyer. Until then, I hope you have a lovely day and I'm sending you loads of love. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.